In this episode of Science Stories, Dr. Science, directly from the Brazilian Amazon, tells us everything about working in the jungle, fishing in Africa, and all about the fantastic electric fish. We also got carried away a little bit and we shared some myths and legends from the Amazon locals, as well as voodoo stories from Benin. Check it out. Welcome to Science Stories. Welcome to Science Welcome everybody to a new episode of Science Stories. Today I'm going to be talking with Dr. Science, who's a PhD from Texas A&M, from the Department of Wildlife and Fisheries. I think now the department is called Ecology and Conservation Biology, but when you got your PhD from Texas A&M, it was Department of Wildlife and Fisheries, right? Hey, Mateo. Yeah, uh, that's right. It was uh, wildlife and fisheries. You did your bachelor's in Florida though, right? Uh, yeah, so I did. I got my bachelor's degree at the University of Florida in Gainesville in uh, biology. And then you moved to College Station to take, to do your PhD in Texas A&M? Yeah, then I moved to uh, College Station and uh, I joined uh, Kirk Weinmiller's lab, which is an aquatic ecology lab. And I had uh, I totally was switching gears. I wanted to work with, uh, initially the idea was to work on a project that he had going uh, with a bunch of collaborators on the Shingu River, looking at the effects of dams on um, on fish diversity. And specifically, there was a, a big dam in construction here, actually the world's third largest dam on the Shingu River. So that was going to be the, the initial project. And but then I, um, that, yeah, totally not happened. Yeah, you ended up becoming an expert in gymnotiforms. Yeah, yeah. Which are com um, commonly known as knife fish. Can you tell what knife fish look like for the people that are listening? Uh, yeah, so there are, um, they, I mean, the reason the electric eel is called an eel is because they look kind of eel-like. They're really long and they don't have, so they have little pectoral fins, but they don't have pelvic fins or dorsal fins or caudal fins. They just have this one fin on the bottom. And then other than that, they're just like these long little snakes. How, how big are they? Uh, they vary in size. Like the smallest one is a species called Microstenarchus. And those can be maybe like five centimeters, really tiny. And then there are some species that can be like half a meter almost. Wow. They're like, yeah, almost two feet long, pretty big. Can you tell us what's special about these fish? Uh, so the genotiforms or knife fish are weakly electric fish. And yeah, there are a million 
special things about them. But the most obvious one, which wasn't obvious for a very long time, is the fact that they uh, generate electric discharges. And most people, when they learn that I work with electric fish, they assume that they can shock me. Like they think that the fish are using this discharge to shock their prey. I But, guess a uh, lot of people can't... ask you if you work with electric eels. Uh, yes. Well, uh, so the electric eel is a gymnotiform. Um, it is not an eel and it is not a marine fish. It is a freshwater fish. So it's not at all related to uh, moray eels or things you typically think of as eels. Or Electric eels can deliver really strong shocks, uh, something up to like 800 volts. But there are only three species of those, and there are over like 260 species of uh, other species of gymnotiforms. And they only produce really weak discharges. They can't shock anything. In fact, up until like the uh, late 50s and early 60s, people had no idea like why they produced electricity at all because it was so weak. And is it true that these are the only fish that can swim backwards? Uh, I don't know if they're the only fish. I don't think, maybe not, but it is pretty amazing how they can swim. They can swim forwards, backwards. They have this modified anal fin that um, when they, it, it just moves in like a wave, it undulates back and forth. And so when they move it from the uh, front uh, to the back, they'll, they'll um, go backwards and then from back to front, they'll go forwards and uh, they can actually move the fin from both sides simultaneously so the wave of the fin will cancel out in the center and push water down propelling the fish upward so they can move i had i used to keep a fish in an aquarium that i had like recordings of it moving upside down backwards diagonally so they wow. are uh, yeah i don't know any other animal that has that type of type of maneuverability it's really incredible to watch them swim How do you collect knife fish? Oh my God, it's a huge pain in the butt. It can be really challenging because they like to hide, right? So it's not like they're just in the middle of a stream or a river and you don't, you don't catch them with a hook and line. In small streams, we use small dip nets uh, and usually we're trying to like Uh, search for them in root banks or like there's some are sand dwelling but oh uh, i mean luckily for us uh, they also are generating electricity so <laughs> i'll have to send you a picture later um, we have these fish detectors these little amplifiers that um, we carry around with us and they're attached to an electrode or in my case i uh, for the longest time i just had this little radio shack amplifier that i connected an aux cable you know that you would connect to like a speaker to listen to your music and connect, tie that to a stick. And I would just wave that around in the stream or in a, a river uh, in like plant material until I started hearing them, right? And they have different sounds like or depending on what species. And then we're like, okay, well, there's one right here in this area. So uh, either we'll use a seine net, like if we're in a river, We'll uh, like usually they're hiding in these macrophytes, these like large floating plants. We'll surround that with a net. Uh, we'll like chop, uh, chop a piece of it of the plants away uh, with a machete, and then surround it with a net, and then pull the underside of the net underneath, like pull it up, so that uh, and then we pull the plants out, toss the plants back in the river, 
and then what's left is uh, some fish. And sometimes you've got just electric fish. Sometimes you've also got some piranhas in there. Yeah, that's how we collect them in the river. Sometimes you just like diving into the chest high water or waist high water. Like, you know, it's down there, but it's like hiding in root masses. So you're like just scooping with your net um, to try and find this fish. It's really frustrating sometimes. What's the weirdest thing you caught with the same net while fishing for knife fish? Definitely, uh, I caught a really big piranha once. And that was, I, it was the first time I'd caught like a really big one. I'm like, uh, I don't know how to like handle that to toss it back out into the, the water. Dr. Science, uh, doc, sorry, Dr. Science. <laughs> yeah, that works. That works, right? Where are you right now? Hmm. I'm in uh, Manaus. I'm in Brazil. Manaus is the capital and the largest city in the state of Amazonas in the northwest of Brazil. Um, yeah, so I'm in my apartment here temporarily. And what are, what are you doing down there? Uh, so just before the pandemic, I received a, a Fulbright to do a postdoc here on uh, some of the work that I had left unfinished during my PhD on uh, on these weekly electric fish. When we were preparing this interview, I remember that you mentioned that you have a floating lab. Oh, yeah. Uh, so the professor that I work with here, uh, so the main lab is at uh, the National Institute for Amazonian Research here. Uh, and... That campus is in the middle of the city, but uh, the professor that I work with here that I'm collaborating with, he has another lab in a small town called Novo Airão, and uh, that lab is a floating lab. So here, when the uh, during the high water season, there's a lot of fl flooding, right? And so there are a lot of houses that are floating houses that just move up and uh, move with the water. And so the lab that we have there sits on the Rio Negro. And uh, it's pretty awesome because we just go uh, catch some fish and then bring them right back to the lab and uh, record them there. And he also, uh, luckily for us, happens to have a microbrewery immediately next to his house there. <laughs> What's the specialty of the house? Oh, well, there really aren't too many beer options here if you're into brews. There are, um, they're mostly pilsners, and it's just so insanely hot and humid here that, like, when you go to a bar or a, uh, even a, a gas station, a lot of the, like, refrigerators that keep all the beer, where they store the beer, they kind of, they brag, it'll show you at the top of the fridge how cold the beer is. It's like the fridge is at minus two or minus three Celsius. Uh, so they keep the beer really cold. So yeah. anyway, at least this professor, um, he makes some, one of the few craft brews here that are brewed in Amazonas. Actually, this is a side story, but there was a final of the Copa Libertadores, you know, this soccer competition. Yeah, yeah, of course. That was played in Uruguay because it, it was agreed that the final was going to be played in Uruguay, in the Estadio Centenario. Yeah. And two Brazilian teams made it to the final. And so there was a swarm of Brazilian people coming into <laughs> Uruguay to watch this final. And there was a formal request from the Brazilian government to the Uruguayan government to make a special effort to keep the beer really cold the way the Brazilians <laughs> like it. Yeah, they really love it cold. I mean, once you, if you come here, you will understand why you want it really cold. 
I mean, it is, it's the combination of the humidity and the uh, heat that like, you really appreciate an extra cold beer. Dr. Science, can you, so you said your fish will not be able to shock you. They're not powerful no. enough. No, not even close. They only generate a couple of millivolts. Can you explain they, how they, they produce the electricity, please? They produce it the same exact way that you produce electricity or that you and I produce electricity. So our um, nerve cells and our muscle cells uh, generate electricity as well. So our muscles, the whole point of our muscles is to contract, right, to lift things. Uh, the, these cells have lost that contractile ability. And so instead of uh, contracting a muscle afterwards, they're just these electricity powerhouses. So um, they're all connected and they have a pacemaker cell in the brain, these fish do. So all of those cells fire at the same time. And so all the sodium flows simultaneously uh, into the cell of each one of those. And those all add up to create a larger discharge that then surrounds the fish. And do we know why did they lose the power to contract the muscles in order to be able to produce electricity with them? What do they use electricity for? So there's two main things that they use it for, and right, not shocking anything. The first is uh, electrolocation, um, and that kind of sounds like echolocation to a lot of people. Uh, so it's what they use to navigate and how they explore their environments and find food. But it's a little different from echolocation, or actually pretty different. So as opposed to sound, which propagates through water, uh, really can go really far, the electricity doesn't. The field around the fish is like two body lengths. So around the fish, they can perceive everything around them. And also unlike sound, which takes time to travel and bounce off of objects and, and come back to animals that echolocate, the electricity is moving at the speed of light, right? So they can, can detect food behind them, like at their tail or um, everything around them at the speed of light, essentially, right? The, the slowest part of the process is the nerve uh, that is sending the signal to their brain. So uh, they perceive their world radically different than we do. And the electricity can also move between objects. Like a lot during the day, a lot of them hide in these root masses and these floating macrophytes and these floating plants on the river. And uh, so the electricity goes around all these roots and plants. So they can essentially like see through walls. And there are some that live in sand. Yeah, that's also how they find their prey. So that's one amazing thing that they use the electricity for. And then the other thing is for electrocommunication. So each species, and like as I mentioned before, there's over 260 currently described, and we're still describing new ones. Each species has a specific frequency that it discharges at. And also the waveform or the shape of the electric signal is different. Uh, and so that's how they identify each other. And they even have like electric courtship songs where they uh, like, it's like a bird song. Many birds have unique songs and sounds that they produce. So does each electric fish. It has a unique discharge and frequency that allows it to recognize other species. So I'm guessing these electron, electric organ discharges are really important for mate choice, for example. Uh, yeah, so it's something that we kind of take for granted. Um, mate choice experiments have been are really hard to do with these fish. Uh, as you might imagine. So these fish are nocturnal for the most part. Um, so they're nocturnally active. And then during the day, uh, they will hide in little tubes, like at least in the aquarium. Uh, they, they like to hide in tubes or little shelters. 
So they're very shy during the day. Uh, but some people have done some mate choice trials where they'll block everything so the fish can't see each other or they'll like try and even block chemical cues and only allow the passage of electricity through some barriers and then see how fish will spend time with other like a, a female might spend more time with a, a fish that has a larger amplitude or um, maybe a slightly longer uh, second phase or something like that. So Dr. Science, when I when I started reading your latest article, you start by saying gymnotiform fishes emit and detect weak electric fields to communicate with conspecific and navigate in dark waters. And I'm I'm really sorry, but the first thing that popped into my mind is when when Joe Rogan tried to correct Neil deGrasse. Do you do you know what I'm talking about? No. So first, can you explain why did you say fishes? Ah, okay. Uh, the so, fishes, gymnotiform okay. fishes. Yeah, I know what you're talking about now. Yeah, so uh, why fishes? Like, why is it like fishes as plural as opposed to yeah, fish? Yeah, wh why, why is the double plural there? When you're referring to a single species of fish, you'll say just uh, there could be like multiple, I don't know, goldfish. And so, those are, those are goldfish. There's fish. But if you're referring to um, like in a stream or something or like that, where there are multiple species of fish, lots of different fish and there's plural there then they're fishes i can thank a scottish ichthyologist on my committee who is very strict and about that do you mind if we listen to what neil degrasse tyson said and we see if you could explain yeah, it better sure. of him <laughs> yeah bro, i'm sure he can explain things better that's, uh, that's his job imagine if ice were denser than water what would happen you'd freeze the top layer it would sink the bottom is frozen. Freeze the next layer, it sinks, and fish would be systematically forced to swim in shallower and shallower waters until they were all freeze-dried on the top surface of the lake. And all fishes would be dead every winter I think in it's fish. every lake. I think it's fish. What? I think you're supposed to say fishes. Fishes is a, is a double plural. You can do that? Yeah. You never all heard fish fishes? would be dead? You never like heard? Like all deer? Would you say all deers? Well, because generally it's one. If you had multiple kinds of deer, yeah. Oh, so if you had like Sitka deer. Yeah, but but and it's white but deer it's deer. rare that they're all in the same place. You generally oh, have one okay. kind of deer in one place. But if the ocean has many kind of fish in the same place. Oh. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. So you would say fishes. I'm sorry, but this is the first thing that I I I couldn't believe it when I started reading your papers and and that's the first thing. Not. Neil deGrasse Tyson was right. Yeah, I mean he's generally is right. Yeah, yeah, of course. He's probably quoting my paper, I'm sure. Um, yeah, exactly. That's what I'm. That's what I'm thinking. He probably read your paper, <laughs> and that's. <laughs> also, in the for example, in the methods sections of this article, that says that that electric organ discharges were recorded using a pair of silver electrodes on either side of the fish. How does yeah. that work? Are you attaching jump cables to a fish, or what? <laughs> uh, not exactly, but um, uh, so what we do is uh, we have, it, it's just a little a plastic pole uh, in the aquarium. So the fish is in the, like a, uh, these fish like to hide during the day, really luckily for us. So we just put a suspended tube in the center, center of a tank and they'll just naturally go hide in that little tube. And so then we put some uh, poles on the ends of each side of the tank of the aquarium. And at the ends of those are those uh, silver electrodes, uh, which is just a, a piece of metal, essentially. And then those 
are connected to uh, an amplifier. And then the amplifier uh, is connected to a digitizer. So they're, they're producing a DC signal uh, and, or sorry, a, um, an analog signal. And we need to convert that into a digital signal. And so the computer can read it. So we convert that signal into something the computer can read. And then there it is, we, it pops up on the computer and we can see the shape of the waveform and uh, measure and record them, record their electric discharges. And, and you can do this from single cells as well. Uh, yeah, so that was actually the, the point uh, or one of the main experiments that I did in that paper. Like I mentioned, the, the electric organ is made up of all these individual electric cells that we call electrocytes. And uh, through this really amazing method, uh, we can take electrodes and stick them into the cell. You're like poking this cell. Uh, so like I, I'll cut off a piece of the tail of a live fish. Don't worry. Uh, another amazing thing about these fish is that they regenerate their tails with the electric organ intact and everything. This is really awesome. You just like take off a little piece of electric organ and then uh, remove the skin uh, from that piece and then identify a single electric cell, poke, stick some electrodes into the cell, and then we can record the electricity passing through that cell, through that individual cell. The reason for doing this was to identify which types of currents, so which I, I mentioned those ion channels before that allow the passage of ions like sodium, potassium, chloride, calcium, uh, which is how they generate the electricity. So uh, we were doing that to study those specific channels, those ion channels. And That's in that amazing. Paper, yeah, it was re really cool. Dr. Science, we have to do a short break. All right. We'll be back with more science stories. Science stories. Science stories. Science stories. Science stories. Science stories. jam uh, yeah man i love that song so before the break we were listening to oh led zeppelin bring it on home and then uh yeah the other one is um uh little wing and this is live from the albert hall 
Life yeah, from the Elver Yeah, yeah it's so good. Definitely my favorite version. There was one when I first found that song. I um, I was on YouTube, and then I for there was like three or four years that I couldn't find that song again because the rights to that one, I, I don't know who it is that has them, but it's really hard to find. And then when I found it again, I bought it immediately. I was like, I'll never lose this version again. <laughs> Doctor Science. Can you tell us about the specialized pores these fish have to receive these electric charges? Oh, yeah. So the electroreceptors. So, right. So they have special cells to generate electricity and they need special cells to detect the electricity. So uh, these fish have two different types of electroreceptors, uh, one called ampullary and one called um, tuberous. And uh, the ampullary receptors might be more familiar to people because sharks also have electroreceptors known as the uh, ampullary receptors of Lorenzini. Um, at least, I hope I'm not messing that up. I really should know that name. No, I, yeah, actually, anyway. I actually heard recently about them. So, yeah, I can back you uh, up. Yes, yeah. all right, awesome. <laughs> uh, so, uh, and actually, many, many animals, especially aquatic animals, exclusively aquatic animals have ampullary receptors. So those types of receptors detect, they're passive, uh, meaning that they don't, they just detect electricity around them in their environment. It's the same thing with sharks and stingrays and stuff. They have their passive electroreceptors and they detect low frequency signals, uh, low frequency uh, electric fields. And uh, the electrofish that I study, the gymnotiforms, uh, also have these tuberous receptors, which are active electroreceptors. And so those detect higher frequency electric fields and they detect the fish's own field that it's generating, right? So that is what it uses in addition to those passive ones. That's what it uses to detect distortions within its field and also to detect the signals from other electric fish that they are communicating with. And so... Uh, to study these pores, you took some really, really cool images for this study. Yeah. Uh, and for I, these images, we, you used the electron microscope. I did. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. It was really challenging and a lot of fun to use a scanning electron microscope, especially because <laughs> so to do this, I would it was a really long process. I would like remove the epidermis from the from the fish's head. I was just doing this on the head desiccate, like dry the fish head. It was a process that took days to prepare. And then finally, before you can image it, I have to coat the fish head in gold, um, which we use these little sputter coaters. And uh, it was a really neat machine with an actual piece of the part of the machine is called like the magnetron or uh, something really cool like that. And like uses plasma to coat this like this beam of uh, gold onto the fish head. But I remember being in the, in the in the coating room and there's like a bunch of engineers and they're also coating like this coating, this uh, these nanotechnology and all this crazy things that, that these physicists are trying to look at under microscopes and they'd see me in there. I'm like, what are you, what are you coating? I'm like, uh, this is a fish head. And, <laughs> and I'm like, what, <laughs> why? Uh, but yeah, so, We did that to be able to look at these electroreceptors up close and to study the distribution of those receptors along the, the head of the fish uh, to try and learn more about uh, how the uh, electroreceptors are 
distributed and how that might affect their, how that might be related to their ecology. Uh, but yeah, we got some really cool uh, images from that. It was a lot of fun. You also did a study about convergent evolution in fish, in a lot of fish, so in general in fish, that yeah. took, took you to Afrotropical regions, Neotropical regions, to the Mesoamerican, Neo-Arctic, and Indo-Malayan regions. So you must have a million of stories from when you were sampling for this study. But before you start sharing these amazing stories, can you, can you please tell us what convergent evolution is? Yeah, so first I'd like to, this was not, this was not uh, my specific project. So one of my lab mates, uh, a good friend of mine, was the one who was the lead on that project. But anyway, so I guess let me define convergence first. Sorry yes, to please. Avoid. Uh, it's when species that come from different lineages, that, so that are, are evolutionarily speaking, distantly related, evolve similar morphologies or uh, adaptations. So for example, um, like a really easy one to picture, right, is a, a dolphin and a shark, right? A dolphin is a mammal, a uh, shark is a, a cartilaginous fish, right? And uh, despite that, they both have similar bodies. They're like this long fusiform shape. They have a dorsal fin, pectoral fins, caudal fin. And so why is that? Like, how is it that over millions of years evolution, these two totally distantly related animals develop a similar body shape or morphology? And the answer is that they, and it's the best way to move around in water, uh, like for their environment. So uh, that is what uh, convergent evolution is. It's so when you're, li when you're studying convergent evolution in fish, you study many factors of where the fish live. And one of them that was particularly important was water velocity. Why, yeah. why is water velocity so important for fish? Because, I mean, imagine if, uh, especially in like a river, you're constantly trying to move an environment that is pushing you and moving you. Then the fish that are typically in rivers are more, they'll have shallower bodies and are more elongated and uh, they can move quickly through fast flowing water. And then things that are typically in like lakes, they'll have different body shapes, more like uh, that aren't necessarily built to move quickly through. So you can think of in Texas, you have like sunfish or people call them perch as well that are better adapted to slower moving waters. And so, yeah, water flow is hugely important for how fish have evolved to move through water. So you went to Benin, to Brazil, to Belize, to New Jersey, South Carolina, Texas. A little of production work told me that you have some crazy stories while sampling in Benin. Yeah, Benin is a fascinating place. So for um, people who don't know, I know geography is not the strongest subject for everybody. Ben Benin is it's in the in the in the coast of Africa and it's uh, neighbor with Nigeria. Yeah, if that helps. It's a it's a like a skinny. It's a sl sliver of a country. It's really long but uh, really thin. Uh, and so yeah, so what happened? Something there. Oh uh, man, uh, yeah. So like I said, fascinating place. Benin is really interesting in that religious beliefs. Uh, so like a, we were being guided by a PhD student who was Muslim and our driver was a Christian, but like he was, he was a 
pastor or a, a preacher and you know, i mean like fire and brimstone like in the mornings when we'd be driving to different sites you would be listening to his own recordings of his uh, sermons of him just like yelling uh, uh and so that it was just a really interesting mix but uh in the south Cotonou, uh the like capital is really interesting because it's 50 percent muslim and 50 percent christian uh but despite you know these this contrast between them uh benin is also like the capital of voodoo beliefs in africa like they host this huge uh, voodoo festival every year so despite their different religious beliefs they both totally agreed on these uh voodoo beliefs that were really fascinating to learn about for example and like <laughs> okay so so my friend um, Nambi, he also studies electric fish, the African electric fish. And uh, I told him I was really interested in the African catfish, the, this Malapterurus, uh, which can dis- uh, like create a pretty strong discharge, like up to 300 volts. And uh, he's like, oh, if you're interested in that fish, you know, that fish can, uh, if we can take that fish to a shaman and uh, that shaman can put a protective spell on you and then he'll shock you with the fish and then your skin will become bulletproof yeah oh my god oh, yeah bulletproof wow that's pretty crazy yeah uh, that's cool uh, which is very helpful um for them because there's a lot of um yeah there's a lot of really interesting geopolitical issues over there but like there's a lot of smuggling on the nigeria over the nigerian border and so being bulletproof is really helpful he told me that unfortunately there are some downsides to being bulletproof like you can't if you have to go to a hospital and get like an IV, uh, then that won't that won't work because the needle can't penetrate your skin, and you can still get your your skull bashed in. Uh, yeah, and it was funny because my so our our advisor uh, before my friend and I went over there, uh, Luke is the other my friend that we did a lot of this work with. Uh, our advisor had told us, you know, that the, they have some pretty amazing voodoo beliefs over there, and that someone had once tried to sell him this box that uh, it was just like a little wooden box. And he told him if he took that box into his home and put a stick through it, like this through this hole in the box, then that would protect his house. It would seal the house from people with bad intentions. So no one could come in and like rob you or something. And uh, my advisor is uh, uh, fairly skeptical about this. And, it, and we were asking if he bought it. Uh, he was like, no, of course I wouldn't buy that. Like, and I'm like, okay. But then Luke and I were like, I don't know, that sounds like a really awesome souvenir. I totally want one of those. And uh, then uh, Luke at one point was asking my friend on B, you know, if I wanted to like buy some protection for myself, you know, where how where could I buy that? And uh, Nambi was like, oh, you you're looking for like some protection for yourself. And instantly in my mind, I was like, oh, I know where this is going. He's talking about the electric fish, uh, the catfish spell. Uh, but I had not relate that information to Luke. <clears throat> Luke's like, yeah, I want to buy some some like protective, some protection for myself. And and then he's like, okay, well, uh, do you have the courage? Luke's like, you know, of course I have the courage. I just like buy a little box is uh, all, he, all he's thinking. He's like, yeah, I've, I've got the courage. And uh, he's like, because he will shoot you. <laughs> to oh, make to, sure that to we're, he's going to shoot you. Yeah. And oh my like, God. Like, no, okay. I don't have the courage. I do not have the courage. Wow. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't entirely know how that, uh, 
how that would work, but you know. Dr. Science, is it true that you were bitten by a bullet ant? I'm not entirely sure that it was a bullet ant, but I was bitten by a large black solitary ant and it it hurt like hell. So, um, but I wasn't like the situation that I was in at the time, the ant was kind of the least of my worries because uh, there was like a rainstorm was starting and we were on an island uh, in the middle of the Rio Negro. And uh, yeah, it's just not a, like a good place to be. And so like the rain was really starting to come down and there was like branches and fruit falling from the canopy. And like, just, you just hear this like you know, massive splash, not too far off. So we're like focused on trying to get out of there. Of course, the wind also blows ants off of the trees, and one fell down my shirt and uh, bit me in the back, and I like yelled out and uh, ripped my shirt off as quickly as I could. And my friend Carolina, who was with me, was like, "Oh yeah, there's a giant black ant on your back." And she like flicked it off, and uh, yeah, then that swelled up to like the size of a racquetball. And uh, it really itched and hurt for like a week and a half, two weeks. And then, uh, and, then <laughs> and then we had to cross the river. And when we left the island, there was, um, it, it was raining really hard. And like the river at this point, so we're collecting this national forest called Anavillanas. It's a beautiful place. It's one of the largest freshwater archipelagos like in the Amazon, just Like the, the river at this point where these islands are is almost 13 miles wide. Like it's just mind bogglingly huge. huge. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, 13 miles wide for a river is just so massive. Uh, and that first island that we were at was about a kilometer uh, away. <clears throat> um, and uh, so we're, we're like leave. And the island is essentially underwater. Like the, the trees are sticking out. Right, there's still like this huge canopy and the trees are sticking out. But um, uh, yeah, when we're in there and we were looking for electric fish, like the water is at my belly button or like close to my chest. And uh, so we're using the detectors there. And uh, once it started raining, our detectors are not waterproof, sadly, that would be awesome. But so we're like, okay, we should, uh, we can either wait it out or head back. But we're like, we're getting hit by waves because there's a lot of wind. Yeah, so once we like leave the tree line, like we decided to leave, uh, we I could not see the other side. The rain was coming down so hard, and uh, there's a thunderstorm going on, and we're in this tiny little metal boat. Um, so yeah, the bullet ant was kind of the least of my concerns because there were like huge choppy waves, and it was beautiful at the same time. Like the Rio Negro uh, is uh, it's black water but it's really more red than it is black. Like it looks like black tea. Um, if you were to like a shine a, a light through like a light black tea, you see all sorts of colors. It's like a, a reddish golden orange brown. And the, the rain was hitting the water so hard that you would get these like, the water would bounce back and back up. And so it looked like with the waves, there was just this rolling sheet of glistening white and red marbles. So it's uh, true, forest, forest camps scene. <laughs> yeah, it, it was amazing. I mean, I, I was just uh, so in awe of the scenery that I didn't really stop to think of like, wow, this is pretty dangerous right now. But uh, yeah, we made it back safely. And uh, yeah, then my back uh, hurt and itched for like two weeks. Dr. Science, we're going to do a, a, another short break and we'll be back. All right, awesome. Science Stories. 
I can see the world from here They ask me where I'm going from here Shit anywhere long as the runway is clear Shit, the music business moving too fast for me Wishing I still had Mac with me Yes, Lord How do you tell a nigga slow it down When you're living just as fast as him I couldn't understand when I seen the stretched out cold on the pavement Niggas catch TKO's on occasion Wishing I could save him What was I to say? I was doing dates, dipping in and out of state was going in to get away Sick of feeling so out of place Wishing I could save you What was I to say? Wishing I could save you But now it's too late Now is this really what I wanted? Is it really worth So why I So why So why So why I So why So why So we're listening now to Sowa or Sowa by Fatoumata Diaguara. That she's a, a singer from Mali. Did you yeah. pick did you pick this up in Benin? Uh no. Actually, so there's a uh I mean you're so close to Austin, there's like huge music fans there and great radio stations. But one of my favorite radio stations is called KEXP. It's from Seattle. And they do a really amazing job at bringing uh, artists from in from all over the world. And uh, yeah, I've learned through KEXP about several different artists from Mali. And there's a, an amazing music scene there, like a, a really cool, so many great musicians. Uh, anyway, that's where I heard her. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's super cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, Dr. Science, I have someone ask me to ask you, what is the origin of electric fish according to the Brazilian locals? There are three indigenous tribes here that share some really fascinating origin stories about some of the Amazonian fish. And the, uh, the one for knife fish is shocking. Yeah, it's an interesting story. So it starts with a man named Wasu. Uh, and Wasu was in search of a wife, but unfortunately for Wasu, none of the women in his town liked him. Um, and so Wasu decided he would take his canoe and go to a, a different town or like go looking for a wife. And he goes to uh, another town, or I can't remember, it's like a couple of towns, but he can't find a wife. Like a, n no women find him 
um, <laughs> like to be a suitable mate. So he's pretty sad uh, and he's on his way home, like going back to his village. And on the way he, he sees a house that he kind of recognizes on the side of the river. And so uh, then he re realizes, oh, that's his, his cousin's house. His cousin is locally known as the devil with no anus. And so he, he stops at his cousin's house and his cousin invites him in and he decides to stay with his cousin for a little while. Like his cousin has to regurgitate his food, like his waste, because he has no anus. And so one day uh, his, his cousin goes out and like with some friends or something and uh, Wasu's left at home and he hears sounds coming from a chest in the house. And so he opens the chest and out pops a woman who then starts uh, caring for him, uh, like preparing him a meal. And uh, Wasu thinks, wow, this is amazing. And then at another time, his cousin's back and this same woman prepares them a meal. And then Wasu, after their meal, he goes to defecate uh, out by the river. And his cousin goes with him and he sees Wasu defecating by the river. And his cousin's like, wow, that's amazing. Uh, how are you doing that? He's like, well, I have an anus. And he's like, well, I wish I had an anus. And he's like, well, I can make you an anus if you want, because my father made mine, so I can just make you an anus. So, okay. And in the story, Wasu goes and he, like, collects a bunch of different sticks from the forest. And he goes, like, naming the sticks of, like, different trees. And he comes back and uh, he's like, all right, well... I'm just going to use one stick at a time. And he starts, he, he makes his, an anus for his cousin with these sticks. And then uh, with the very last stick, he shoves it all the way up to his throat and then rips out all of his intestines. And uh, his intestines, his cousin's intestines fall into the water and uh, they become gymnotiforms. Wow. What a story. Yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah, that's how uh, gymnotiforms came to be. And... I guess like the idea was Wasu wanted to steal the other woman from his cousin. But the cool, uh, one of the cooler things about the story is that gymnotiforms, if you look at a picture of them, or if you, if you look at one, almost their entire body is made up of electric organ. Like all of their, the viscera, the vital organs are all packed into this tiny space, like right up by their throat. So like, it's like all, it's really densely packed right by their head. And so their anus is right underneath their throat. Uh, and then like the rest of the body is. Hmm, makes sense. Orient. Yeah. So I wonder if that's uh, like, I think that that's kind of how like, well, why does this fish have its anus right there? And like, well, probably takes after this. Uh, yeah. The devil with no anus. I actually have a story uh, for you. Oh yeah. Yeah. And this is a legend about turtles and electric eels which i know it's not what you studied but close enough right electric I, e I mean i work with electric eels sort of <laughs> that i heard it from a documentary a peruvian uh, film documentary about candamo that's a, a river that goes into the jungle and they claim it's the last piece of jungle without men or without man mm -hmm. mankind or still virgin and in oh. this documentary which is amazing it's the best documentary i've, I've ever seen they tell this story. So do you mind if I, if I, tell, I tell it to you? No, man. I, yeah, I would love to hear it. You got to share the documentary with me later. So people in the Amazon say that a good way to tell if there is an electric eel in the water or not is to check for turtles. 
the, the legend goes that electric eels are pretty bad-tempered and they want peace and quiet around them. So they would discharge whenever they see humans splashing around. Mm. But they're also kind of lazy. So when they're in at the bottom of the river and they hear noises, they ask the turtles to go and check what's going on. Are the humans messing around again? I'll go shock them, they would, they would say, right? And then the turtles <laughs> would, would say, uh, wait, I'll, I'll, have, I'll, I'll go and check. And they swim to the surface and sin tur since turtles are gentle, when they come back, they would tell the eel, no, don't worry about it, it's just the tree leaves that are falling down. Therefore, people trust that if there are turtles in the water, they won't get shocked by an eel. And here's my question. Do you know if their presence is associated at all? I mean, that's an awesome story. I have no idea if there's any real association between turtles and electric eels. Uh, however, the idea of eels just shocking the water in general is really fascinating because uh, so electric eels have three main types of discharges. They'll have like the base discharge like all gymnotiforms where they're just using it to perceive their environment and uh, communicate and then they have uh, like a hunting or two different like hunting ones one uh, so right so they have these like electroceptors that can detect uh, passive electric fields so <clears throat> if they think that there's like a fish hiding around or like some prey item they'll do this like startle shock where uh it's like a, it's not very strong it's just enough to startle the fish to like make it move uh because there are electric fish also that will like stay really still they'll even stop discharging momentarily like they uh to not be detected so they do this like a startle shock and that will cause the fish to then move you know like freak out and move a bit and then the uh electric eel can detect them easily because it'll detect the, the electricity um from the muscles of those fish and then they do the strong discharge to shock them and paralyze the fish and then consume them wow that's super uh, interesting yeah yeah they're uh, the eels are uh electric eels are amazing they also another weird fact about i don't know if uh they're they're air breathers like obligatory air breathers if you cut the uh cut them off access cut off access from the surface they will die they have lungs yeah, or sort of, and the, the the lungs are like in their throat, too. Um, yeah, they're really bizarre. Like they, I mean, and they look like the uh, like alveoli. Yeah, if you open up an electric eel mouth, you can see their like their lungs. Doctor Science, I have a question from someone. Is there a crazy application for a fish you wish you could accomplish, no matter how difficult? It would be really cool to use some of the cellular machinery in these electric fish to build batteries, biogenerators. And this has kind of already been started. There are labs trying to build biogenerators that uh, function similarly to the way these electric cells work. And there's kind of like a, a key, a, a missing part to this. and. Um, that, that we really don't know well yet. So the, the cells that we've built or that P other labs have built like this are not very efficient yet. But uh, I mean, it would be amazing to build biogenerators that uh, imagine having batteries that we could power organically, like have um, uh, like power medical 
devices with them. So you can have like a, a pacemaker for your heart or, or maybe more extremely like a prosthetic, an arm or something that would be powered off these biogenerators, these batteries that work the way these electric cells work. And so like, oh, you wouldn't have to replace the batteries. You would just eat food and your own metabolism could power these batteries or like your, your devices. That would be so cool. Yeah, it would be amazing. I mean, all of our energy sources currently, right. All depend on some external things. I mean, it would be so cool to have biological batteries. Dr. Science, did you also do research in Galapagos islands? Yeah, yeah, I did. So, um, That one, I, I just got really lucky to be able to do that. So my family is from Ecuador. Uh, they're from Guayaquil. And um, through some contacts I had, I knew someone that was working for an NGO there. And so during my undergrad, or just before my undergrad, I went there twice. I worked there for about three months. Uh, I got to go um, do an internship with an NGO there. Uh, and that was incredible. It's really what kind of, changed my focus or, or made me more open to studying ecology later for my PhD uh, than because before my, my focus was more in neuroscience. <clears throat> and uh, yeah, the Galapagos are uh, such an incredibly unique place. It's highly recommend visiting. What do you have to say about your extreme resemblance with Val Kilmer? Uh, uh, <laughs> uh, nothing. I don't know. I guess, yeah, I have, I've, I've met a couple uh, friends that said I look like Val Kilmer. Dr. Science, thank you so much for participating in Science Stories. Did, did you have a good time? Uh, yeah, it was awesome. Thanks for having me. Um, it was a lot of fun. I really, I really, really enjoyed your stories. Thank you for listening to Science Stories. Wow. Wow.